0: A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and a motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hey, thanks for listening. This is part two of my interview with Nick Egan. One thing I want to ask you about, I thought it was a really interesting description. I'd never heard emotions explained this way before, but you liken emotions to firecrackers. Mm -hmm. Will you say more about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that emotions the way that we experience strong emotions it's like little miniature explosions that kind of can can go through our our mental experience and in in Buddhist tradition you know the mind and emotions are not dissimilar so so I think it's a little bit broader understanding of what we think of as the mind in the west it's it's very common to think of the mind as like just a pure cognitive process but emotion is essentially like a thought that you can feel and it lives in the same space as, as regular thoughts. And so the idea is that these emotions can, they pop up, you know, they, they just sometimes pop up. And very often what happens is we'll have these emotions pop up and then we create a story quite quickly around why we're, why we're mad. And, and we think that it's like, oh, that person made me mad. Actually, you, you were kind of just in a bad mood and you were having this emotion and you've created the story around it. So it's the opposite of how we experience it normally.
0: Yeah, I love that. And you said something also about the more tightly you hold the emotion, Mm -hmm. the the more damage or the more intense it might be felt. Whereas if you open your hand, Mm -hmm. you know, the explosion that that emotion can be or that that firecracker is, the less it it can injure us. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really cool.
1: That actually came from... (laughs) Real experience in my childhood, my grandpa, I I live in California, like I mentioned, and um, my grandpa lived in Nevada, and he would bring us all of the illegal fireworks and (laughs) firecrackers. So we would, we would do all kinds of experiments to try to create the biggest bang for our buck, literally. And he would show us, you know, look, you can hold them in, out in your hand and it just leaves a little black mark, even some of the larger ones. But then if you tie, if you put duct tape around it or, or constrain it in any way, and that he said, that's why you never close your hand when you do it and to, you'd lose a finger. Um, and I think that most of the time when people think about meditation or working with the mind, they, they don't, they want to sort of suppress these negative emotions as opposed to letting them arise, noticing that they're there and then Finding a way to stay centered while they pass through the mind, um, and that in that way they don't do, I think the damage that can be done, which is essentially driving us to act out of them, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's the real damage. Is like I'm feeling this moment of anger or frustration or whatever, and then I act in a way that expresses that, and then it becomes a self fulfilling loop. Um, Now I've just created this habit that I'm going to continue to act on every time I get frustrated and it can just increase and it becomes this negative spiral. And so that's that's what that's about.
0: For people who are listening that maybe haven't either really tried meditation or they have tried it and they felt like I don't know how to do this or I'm not sure it's working. I know this is maybe a really big question, but what do you say to those people who are either skeptical or they've tried it and they're not sure it it quote Mm -hmm. unquote works.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the quote unquote works piece, that's very similar to, you know, do, does exercise work? You know, I mean, it works. It may not work if you're not exercising properly or if you don't have the right trainer or if you don't go frequently enough. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why exercise might quote unquote, not work, but we we know that it has worked for people in the past and it could work for us in the right circumstance to get us as fit as we would like to be. Um, and I would say it's not, it's, it is simple. It's not necessarily easy, but it also sometimes is easy and it depends on, I think the person, some personality and also their experience level, the commitment that they've had to the practice. Um, and i would say that also many many people have not had great meditation instruction and because they're reading a book or they're listening to a tape or on the flip side you know they go to a temple and somebody's giving them this very sort of rigid instruction that's not tailored to their language and their understanding of the world and so it's been really interesting to me to see some people that i've taught meditation to have these experiences very relatively quick in months, you know, that took me years to, to get to and maybe that's because you have this instant feedback loop of having a teacher that it Can understand your language and understand what your experience is, but I, I think it's actually it's quite possible and I think as more and more teachers in the West become Fluid in the techniques and the teaching aspects because those are the two things right you can know you can You can have great realization, but if you're not a great teacher That's a, it's a little bit of a uh, tricky situation, Um, but as more people get to that level, it'll become more and more common.
0: Yeah. It seems to be um, becoming more common for sure. And I know that many things, you know, cycle styles and and fashion and, you know, activities and even foods, I mean... Mm -hmm whether we like it to or not, pumpkin spice is, it's going to come back, (laughs) you know, (laughs) right. I I think in the seventies and the age of Aquarius and mindfulness was a big thing and Mm -hmm. sixties for sure. And now here it is again in its current incarnation. But, and while I haven't been around, you know, for every time it's gone through its cycling, it feels to me like this one's different. Mm -hmm. You know, it feels to me like, and, and this is just the way I'm interpreting, you know, history and current experiences that, you know, as a society, we've had a lot of success materially. We've, you know, we've conquered or eliminated many diseases and man, we've been able to build some pretty cool machines and technology and buildings and things like that. But at some point where many of us are sitting here, you know, where our primary concerns are not food or where are we going to sleep or how are we going to avoid our enemies? And instead we're, you know, working our nine to fives going, you know, paying our mortgage, living for the weekend, Mm -hmm. thinking, is this all there is? Like, is this, is this really it?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, your point is well taken. I think it does cycle and you can go back even, I mean, 60s and 70s and then 80s. And there are these different almost incarnations of the same kind of thing and and go back even farther. I mean, I would say that the spiritualism of like the twenties, 1920s with the mediums and the seances and all of that is a call to, you know, there is more, there is more to life than just what we see all the time. Um, and I think that that's, I think one of the reasons it's a little bit different this time is because the gatekeepers of knowledge within our society, which is science, right? I mean, we, we live in a scientific society and if science gives a rubber stamp on something, then it's sort of like taken as orthodox. And, right. and what I've seen is that as scientific instrumentation becomes more and more subtle, it falls in closer and closer with at least the meditative, validating the meditative traditions of the East, Um, and, and also I think the West, I mean, I think that there could be, and perhaps there is, uh, could be a great Renaissance of rediscovering Western traditions and Western meditation and all of that. Um, which I I don't want to discount that at the slightest bit, but I remember, so when I first started, um, in undergrad studying psychology, it was really clear, at least as taught by the textbooks that the neuroplasticity, meaning the, the way that your mind your brain was going to form was solidified by the time you were 22 or or somewhere thereabouts. And now we're finding that no, that's actually not the case.
0: And transition us now into um, really the second part of the interview, it's not equal thirds, but it is the second part, which is the enlightening lightning round. If Uh If you're good, if you're ready for that. Absolutely. Okay, so question number one please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. (laughs) Life life is like a endless
1: knot of discovery.
0: Gordian knot, if you will, perhaps. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Number two, what's something at which you wish you were better? Martial arts. Number three, If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Let go. That was pretty quick, by the way. You knew that one right off. (laughs) (laughs) Number four, what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often?
1: Oof, that's a hard one. Um, Probably The Joy of Living by Mingyur Rinpoche.
0: And question 4B, what are you currently reading?
1: I am actually rereading uh, the Heart Sutra.
0: Number five. So you travel a ton. What's one travel hack, something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable?
1: Oh, That's a great question. I, the best thing to bring when you are traveling in rural situations are carabiners, clips to be able to hang things and a little bit of um, some kind of twine or rope.
0: So handy. And what about when you're traveling just, uh, maybe on the continent, maybe speaking engagements or, or consulting gigs or whatever, what, what, uh, what do you like to do to make your travel as enjoyable as possible then?
1: Oh, wrinkle-free shirts. <laughs> no question.
0: Nice. Nice. Okay. Number six. Um, and by the way, any brands that you like in particular
1: for the wrinkle-free shirts? I, yeah. I like banana Republic. Hmm.
0: I haven't checked theirs out. Maybe I'll do that. Cool. Okay. Number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well?
1: Oh, well, I think that, you know, black tea creates, um, it releases uh, certain chemicals within your body quite a bit quicker than green tea. Uh, It has less caffeine, green tea does. And so it's helped me stay focused and alert over a longer period of time without having to drink so much caffeine, essentially. Nexus IT helps companies of all sizes manage their information technology with hyper-responsive white-glove IT support and services to handle the most basic tasks, like monitoring and maintenance, to the more complex projects like digital transformation. Visit their website at nexusitc.net.
0: Okay, number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew?
1: Oh, ancient history why i i think that there's so much to be learned from ancient history not i mean going beyond even the past thousand years so going to egyptian history assyrian history and just realizing that that as humans we have such a long tradition of knowledge and understanding and fighting and being in relationship and i think that that gives us great perspective yeah
0: i agree i wish i knew more about that myself Um, number eight, what's the most important or useful relationship advice you've ever received and successfully applied?
1: Be gentle with yourself and whoever's with you.
0: Hmm. Okay. And then number nine, aside from the phenomenal power of compound interest, what's the most important lesson you've ever learned about money? Or what's something you're sure to do with money or to not do with it?
1: Mm. I come from a family of very successful real estate entrepreneurs. So it's not compound interest. I would say it's leverage and amortization are the most powerful concepts that I'm aware of. And I am very much um, pro investing in real estate and particularly multifamily real estate. Hmm.
0: Right on. Okay. And then I'm going to ask this here to make sure I include it and not just try to squeeze it in at the end. But if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do?
1: Two ways. One, connect with me on LinkedIn. Or two, uh, you can go to NickEgan.com. Excuse me, NickEganPhD.com.
0: Okay, cool. And then the other thing that I want to be sure to say here as well, is that as an expression of gratitude to you for making time to chat with me and share of your wisdom and and your experience with everybody who's listening, um, I've gone on Kiva.org and I've made a $100 microloan to a woman named Taslima who's in Alapurduar, India. Mm. Uh, She'll use this money to purchase wood and planks and bamboo to expand her shuttering business to improve the quality of life in her community and for herself and her family. So thank you for giving me a reason to go and make that microloan.
1: Fantastic, thank you very much, Brian, I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, so the last part of of the conversation here that I wanna ask about is well, before I ask about the creativity and the writing component, um, let me ask you this: what what didn't I ask? What did I what did I not ask? Or what did you want to talk about that maybe we didn't touch on yet, if anything? I can't, I mean I think
1: I have loved how the conversation has really focused on what I would consider philosophy and spirituality, and so I, I'm very happy with that. It's not something I get to talk about at such a deep level on podcasts very often. And so I would not add anything
0: to it. Awesome. Well, good. Well, I've enjoyed, I very much enjoyed the conversation to this point. And I, I believe, um, you know, people who've tuned in have as well, at least I hope they have. And at the same time, I hope that people listening are able to take something, even if it's only inspiration or an idea, you know, that gives them, you know, insight into something that's possible, a way that they can be or stop being, you know, something like that. Because as much as I love philosophy, I also love practicality. And maybe that's the Westerner in me as well, as how can I use this? How can I make it into something that will accomplish something? But
1: Yeah. There's a saying in Tibet, it's it says, um, if you only study philosophy and don't practice, it's like climbing a mountain with no hands. And if you only practice and don't study philosophy, it's like climbing a mountain with no legs. you you need to have both.
0: Interesting. Wow. I like that. That's cool. Okay. So the last part of the conversation here, um, I want to ask you about getting the book done and both, uh, because I I just love the creative process and I'm always, I know it's, you know, if there's a book on the shelf, it guaranteed that author took a different route from every other author who's got a book on the shelf. let me start by asking you this. When did you first know that you were going to write this book? What was the moment that you had that clarity or that certainty?
1: <sighs> I, I think that I've known for a long time that I wanted to write a book that helped people in their daily life using some of the tools that I had seen um, through my practice and, and through my studies um that was a very applicable that anybody could pick it up that i could give it to you know my mother-in-law or a friend or an acquaintance and say hey you know check this out you might find it useful and mm-hmm. so i'd had that desire for a long time and i had sat down a few times to do like iterations of that and i the way i started is by doing an outline and uh-huh. they were not particularly good <laughs> and it wasn't until i came I, it just struck me out of the blue that I, I wanted it to be focused on shifting perspectives. What, what now I think it's called mindset coaching. And so really I was like, well, how does what do I do in terms of mindset coaching and how is this informed by my Buddhist practice and my understanding of psychology? And then how do I codify that for others to get some value from it?
0: So yeah, that's my experience too, is that many people know they want to write a book. In fact, I asked a publisher once I said, is it true? Like, do you think it's true that?
1: Sorry, everybody, Brian, shut out. I heard many people know.
0: Yeah. So, what I was saying is that many people know that they want to write a book for sure. But of course, not everyone does. Um, was there a specific instance, maybe a conversation with a friend or when you finish reading another book or, you know, maybe the thought that was in your mind first thing in the morning? Like, was there a, a specific moment where you're like, this is it. It's not only like a desire or an aspiration, but I'm going to, that, that moment, it just became a definite thing for you.
1: Uh, I, I don't, I remember just sitting down at my computer and thinking now I'm going to do that. Like I've tried to, I've tried and and stopped a few times and it was just, it was a moment that just kind of struck me. I just sat down and I was like, no, now is the time. And that's when everything else
0: happened from there. What do you think was different about that time from all the previous attempts to, you know, create an outline or or get this thing really going?
1: You know, you know what it was? It So there's this um, story about Steve Jobs um, and we get the term artists ship from it. And the story goes that he, they, the makers, the designers around the first iPhone were like, hey, we just need a little more time to get it perfect. You know, we need the art to be there. And he said, no, real artists ship, meaning they, they let go of their products and, and push them out into the world. And I thought, you know, I could spend another decade making this perfect just in conceptual ways, but it was like, no, I'm an artist and I'm going to ship my products. That's awesome. That's great.
0: I, I really admire that. Um, because again, I know sometimes our own standards of perfection or our own unwillingness to believe that we're capable or worthy you know, we are our own worst enemy, but that willingness to transcend, I mean, it truly is practicing what you preach. So that's great. Let me, let me ask you this, who has been important in your development as a writer and what have you learned from them?
1: Uh, I would say, you know, as from an author perspective, a wordsmith perspective, Chogyam Trungpa, I mean, I love the way he really phrases things and has such an eloquence about his works. I mean, he's he's passed now, but I I go to his written works quite often for inspiration.
0: I wonder, he was a rascal. Yeah, Um, he was. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, do you know, did he write in English or was some of the way his writing comes across, do you think that was the effect of a translator?
1: No, it was the, it's the effect of, so some of the way his writing comes across, it's the effect of having um, English as his second language. And so all of his writing was essentially transcripts of teachings Hmm. and then, and they would ask clarifying questions. And I know some of his, you know, senior students, I'm very familiar with that. So that's, so that's the way I think a lot of the, the tone of his writing comes across, but I also, I mean, he had a way of searching for a richness in language to really get across, um, the juiciness of the experience. And that's something
0: that I try to aspire for as well. Yeah. That's awesome. What was your routine? What did your, how did you structure your time in order to actually get all these words on a page, get them edited, get it published?
1: least for me, I, and I know other writers do this differently it It's important to find a balance between your day to day and not overly stress yourself out about the actual process and so for me, it was a matter of setting aside time and following that but not burning out. I had a, a monk that I met in Nepal actually, and he told me that the essence of diligence is knowing when to take a break.
0: Hmm. I like that um. What advice or experience do you have that you would offer to others um, who are maybe in the middle of their own project or have had the intention for a long time, but haven't really got into action about it? What do you say to others to help them get their creative projects over the finish line?
1: Yeah, I would say make sure that you are rooted and centered in the intention that it's going to be of benefit to people because even just one person experiencing the benefit of whatever it is that you're writing about is immeasurable. And it's that, that kind of intention will get you through the difficulty that you're bound to face.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, uh, I think this, I think writing is not all sunshine and rainbows (laughs) for everyone.
1: Yeah. But nothing, nothing serious is, you know, I don't know. I don't know anybody that, You can take any kind of um, activity that you enjoy, you know, even if it's just a hobby and it to really get good at it, you're bound to come up against some serious challenges and obstacles. And it it takes more than just sheer enjoyment to get beyond them.
0: Yeah, that's definitely my experience as well. Okay, um, cool. Well, let me ask this then. What, in your view, what are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them?
1: So a great sentence is something that reflects the tone and the tenor and the personality of the author. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to write in an authentic way for oneself and not try to imitate others. And so that's why it's really it's really critical not to just be reading a ton of things while you're trying to write or work on a book. Um, and just pick and choose wisely. And also maybe even maybe even put that on hold while you're doing your project.
0: Yeah, that's something to think about for sure. The influence, right? And we hear that a lot in music. You know, artists will talk about who their other influences have been. But I think in writing, that's not always something, you know, we think about, Mm -hmm. but uh, definitely something to contemplate there in that answer. Well, cool. Um, Anything else that you feel like would be a contribution to listener as it relates to writing or the creative process?
1: No, I think that if I were to just encourage people, that I I know it can seem long and arduous and it is, but um, it can be so rewarding when you hear the impact that it makes on other people. So just stay with it. And if you need to, you know, find, find a guide, find a resource to be able to help you push through.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And that brings something up for me that I do want to just ask about here as well, which is the fact that you, you delivered a Ted talk as well that's in some ways a parallel to this book. Will you share a little bit about how your experience was and how important was that in really helping you get the book done as well?
1: Sorry, Ryan, you cut out after the fact.
0: Okay, so what I was asking about is the fact that you have delivered a TED Talk Mm -hmm. uh, that in some ways is a parallel to this book. And what I'm interested to know is how important... In the creation of the book, was it for you to create and deliver the TED Talk?
1: Yeah, for me personally, it was not particularly important. Um, I would say that much of what I teach and write about is there's similar kinds of themes, and so the idea of you know how do I how do I take the information that's in the book and use it in a podcast, for instance, or use it in a TED talk or use it in a one day workshop. So it's like that, that content that what I'm trying to move people towards is it, it needs to be, I need to know it deeply enough and experience it deeply enough to be able to make it accessible to people in any form, you know, whether that's a, a one hour coaching session with somebody or, you know, a 20 minutes TED talk.
0: Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Well, cool. Okay. Well, good. Well, then let's go ahead and wrap up with that. I know at some point um, you'll make your way here to Utah, which is not so secretly the center of the universe. And next time you do, I hope you let me know. You're always welcome as a guest in our home.
1: Oh, so, thank you. I really appreciate that. And time. I, yeah, yeah, next time I'm Utah, absolutely. I have a good friend that lives over there. So
0: that's great. great. And um, in the meantime, I wish you a whole bunch of success with this book. Congratulations on getting it done and getting out into the world.
1: Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate it. I had a blast talking with you. So best of luck.
0: Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work,